please stand with me for the reading of the word. Today we'll be reading from the New Living Translation, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding, the pigs looked, like, looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I'm dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I have slaved for you, and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, You have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. You can be seated. Thank you, Robert. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? It's good to see you. Thanks for coming to church today. Um, We're going to, this summer, have a... An emphasis that was kind of a, we called an audible a little bit, um, because this past Sunday when Andrea was speaking, she did a great job, by the way, Yes, uh, last Sunday. Uh, many of you have told me, like, she's better than you, and that's okay. I take that. It's all right. Doesn't hurt my feelings. I asked her to preach more, but she won't do it. Um, but as she was speaking, a lot of you know if you were here last week, I was just so moved by the thought of praying for our children, our sons and daughters, not necessarily... 
our literal sons and daughters, even though we probably do have sons and daughters to pray for, but our friends, family friends, nieces, nephews, grandkids, um, that don't know the Lord or aren't serving the Lord. And uh, that's always something we care about, but for whatever reason, just was prompted Sunday and then all throughout this week, just so strongly about that. And, uh, and so told the team that, that I wanted to just make that kind of our emphasis this summer. I know technically summer hasn't started yet, um, but just make that the emphasis this summer. I'll preach some different messages on it and things like that. But one of the things that we're doing is we are specifically this summer just praying for our sons and daughters. And we put together a wall out in the lobby, and we'd love for you today to go by there, take one of those markers, and just write down the names of um, the next generation that uh, needs to or we hope that, or we're praying for to follow Christ, uh, maybe to come back to church, maybe to, to follow Christ. And we're just going to be praying about that this summer. And my prayer and my hope is that we'll see, and who knows how and when and all that stuff, that's up to God, it's not up to us. But my prayer is that we'd see a hundred of our sons and daughters uh, come back home, come to the Lord, serve Jesus. So will you be praying with me about that this summer? Will you just agree together? We're going to be praying for our children, praying for our sons and daughters um, and, uh, and so because of that, kind of quite naturally, the Bible story that was on my mind uh, this week was the story of the prodigal son. This is uh, such a well-known story, maybe, maybe the most well-known story that Jesus uh, told, parable that, that Jesus told. And I think one of the reasons, there are a lot, but I think one of the reasons that this story is so memorable is because it's, it's very easy for us to see ourselves in the story. You know, at different times in your life, you can feel like the younger son, maybe the older uh, son, maybe the father, you know, in the story. We can kind of see ourselves in the story, and I think it hits home with us in a couple of different ways. I think all of us know, we know what it feels like to, to, to feel lost and struggling and ashamed. I think everybody in the room has a period of time in your life where you know what it feels like to feel lost and ashamed and, and to feel as if you're struggling. And we can relate to that. But we can also relate to the older brother too. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller, who passed away this, actually this weekend, um, this is one of his favorite stories to, to, to preach, one of his favorite stories to teach on. And he said that it shouldn't be called the prodigal son, it should be called the prodigal sons. But for the older brother, he also wanted there to be something about himself that was worthy of love. And for him, it was being dependable. He would get the job done. He would follow the rules. You could count on him. And so both of these sons, these brothers, are wanting to have something about them that is worthy of love. And while one son stays and, and one leaves, Neither of them, like Keller said, have a relationship with the father. And in that sense, the prodigal sons is a great story to teach us and remind us again about the Christian gospel message. We see the heart of God and the heart of Christianity in this story. I think if you were to ask most people, kind of generally, if you were to ask most people, hey, what is Christianity or what is church? If you kind of lump those two things together, they're not the exact same thing, but I think it's fair to kind of lump them together. If you were to ask people, hey, what is Christianity? What is church? I think most people, if you just randomly selected them off the street, would say, you know, it's where good people go and it's where bad people can get help if they want it. Something kind of general like that. And that is true. I mean, I think 
it would be fair to say that Christianity or church does those things, but it's, that's not exactly what it is. It's so much more than that. At its core, Christianity or the Christian faith is about believing that there is something about you that is worthy of love. There's something about you that truly is lovable. And it's not who you are, and it's not what you accomplish or the credentials that you have to your name. It's not because you earn it or because you proved yourself worthy of it. It's because you have received a love so great and so compelling that you now see yourself as lovable. Because of what Christ has done, you are now worthy of love, not because of who you are in yourself, but because of who God sees you as and who God thinks that you are. Christianity changes your identity because you are no longer what you do or what you're good at. You are who God says you are and how God sees you. And that's really what the Christian faith is about. But sadly, most Christians don't believe that. Maybe they've never heard it explained that way. Um, Or maybe they have heard it explained that way, but they forget. And so instead what happens is that we pick up this, um, this kind of hybrid faith where it's got the Christian faith in it, but it's also got some stoicism and it's also got some self-help in there. And so what happens is we say, okay, I'm forgiven by God and then it's my responsibility to not mess it up. This is what so many of us as Christians believe, that we are forgiven by God but then loved based on our future performance. So we say to God, well, God, thank you for forgiveness. I promise I won't mess it up. And we do. And then we feel completely unlovable and unworthy. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe you're here and you are a tenacious rule follower. And you came to church and you came to faith and you came to religion and it didn't take you long to figure out what you should do and how you should do it and what's acceptable and what's unacceptable and you went to work and if you're going to do it, you're going to do it great. And so you did it and you are a good person and you do limit your mistakes and you aren't as bad as all of those other people. And so it's not so much that you feel unworthy as much as it is that you feel superior, prideful, judgmental. And you find it impossible to love anyone else because you can't not look down on them. We see both examples of this in our story. We see someone who feels unworthy of love because of their mistakes, and we see someone who is incapable of loving because of their pride. We see humiliation and pride. We see guilt and judgment We see rebellion and religion in this story, and it hits home with every one of us because we know what these sons feel like. But God was wanting to make a point. The entire chapter of Luke 15 was about lost things being found, and so God was making a point. Matter of fact, what we read today, Robert read to us, started with, and to illustrate this point, Jesus is making a point. And I think in this story, um, There's so much we could learn, but I think specifically we could learn three things about God, about the heart of God, about the Christian faith, about what it means to know God. 
And I want to give those to you, those three things. I think the first thing we can learn in this story is that, is that God will let you go. He'll let you go. I think the second thing we learn is that he welcomes you back. He always welcomes you back. And then I think the third thing that we learn about God in this story is that he invites you in. He'll let you go. He'll always welcome you back. And he invites you in. This helps us see the heart of God. And so I want to, for just the time we have left today, I want to just talk about these three things that hopefully we could understand the heart of God a little bit more from this story. And so the first thing that we learn about God in this story and about Christianity in this story is that God will let you go. He'll let you go. We read this story with a modern lens. So it sounds like when the younger son comes to the father and says, I want my inheritance, that sounds rude, but not terrible. Because if we're being honest, we kind of wanted our parents to give us money before they died too. We'd like some of our inheritance a little bit early as well. So we read this and we think, well, it's, I mean, it's probably a little bit rude, but not like the worst thing you could ever say. But for the people who are listening to Jesus tell this story, these were Eastern people. This was an Eastern philosophy, an Eastern mentality. And this was the, one of the worst things you could ever say to your father, to your family. Because in an Eastern society or an Eastern philosophy, your entire identity was about relationship. It was about family. In an Eastern philosophy, there was no concept of independence. There was no concept of finding yourself or looking within. You were quite literally your family. And so when Jesus is telling this story, the people who were listening at this time would have been so offended because what the younger son was saying in essence was, um, I would rather have your money than have a relationship with you. Or, I mean, quite literally, we could say that the youngest son was saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. I'm ready to leave here, but I also want you to pay me before I go. And so for the people listening, as you might expect, like this is the worst thing that um, the youngest son could have said. And the, and, the, and the father would have been well within his rights at that point to hit him, beat him, kick him out of the house, never give him a penny. But instead, he does something unfathomable to the people who are listening to this story. He sells part of his estate, because there was no 401ks, there was no savings account. Your, your wealth was in your land. And so he sells some of his land, he sells some of his estate, it would be safe to assume, and he cashes it out, and he gives the money to his son. He gives him what he wants. And parents, we all know when our kids want to do something that's a terrible idea, don't we? I got four kids, and their ideas right now are not necessarily going to ruin their future, but we do want to, like, ride down the stairs on a mattress, you know? We do want to stick scissors in a socket sometimes and just see what happens. I guess that could harm their future now that I think about it. <laughs> we do want to see if we can jump over the entire pool and make it. And so we know, parents, what it's like when your kids have a terrible idea, but their heart's set on it. You try to talk them out of it, you're wasting your breath. And so every parent in the room knows what it's like when you come to this moment where you go, okay, if this is what you want to do, go for it. And you just brace for impact because you know it's going to happen. And we could tell funny stories about that, but some of you are parenting older kids, adult children, 
And it's not about mattresses down steps. It's about decisions that keep you up at night because you are worried that they are harming their life or their future. And this father knows that this youngest son is, 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 is making a harmful decision for his future. And every person listening to this story would have said to Jesus, no way. He's going to waste the money. He doesn't even deserve it. He was offensive. Don't even give him a penny. And the father cashes out and he lets his son leave at his expense. At his expense. And this teaches us something about Christianity that most people don't know. That God will let you go. He'll let you go. I don't know if you knew that or not, but you're not trapped. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to be a good person. Spend your money however you want. Have sex with whoever you want. Believe whatever you want. God will let you go. And he's not mad at you. And he's not going to give you cancer because you decided to leave. And he's not going to make all your tires go flat every time you try to drive because you told him you didn't want anything to do with him. He'll let you go. And if you were to talk to the average person who has hostility towards Christianity, they would say the problem they have with Christianity is that it is repressive and that it's old-fashioned and that it keeps people trapped and it keeps people locked in and it doesn't allow people to have self-expression or freedom. And, and sadly, there are many Christians who have embodied those ideas, and so that's why people have those kinds of ideas, and I totally understand that. But that's not Christianity, and that's not the heart of God. You don't have to do anything you don't want to. He'll let you leave. He'll let you leave. But it's not so cut and dry that like there was this one time I wanted to leave, but then like there was not this other time, then there was a time I wanted to stay. No, it's like Monday, maybe want to go. Tuesday, not sure. Wednesday, I'm feeling good. Thursday, definitely want to leave. I'm not sure where I'm at in my faith. We all can relate. There's, a, there's an old hymn that has that line that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Every single person in this room knows what it's like to think about another life, an alternative version of your life. And there's this natural temptation that we all face because our society constantly tells us that happiness is found only when you break free from tradition and religion and gain total independence. And so if you just kind of told, stop the story right here, the modern philosophy would say, yes, this is it. He's deconstructing. He's breaking away. He's, he's getting rid of the patriarchy. He's, he's breaking free from all of the things that are holding him back. He's free. He's finally free. And he is. The father lets him go. Because God will let you leave. And it's worth asking, why would God do that? Why would God let us leave? Why would the father let his son go? Here's why. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And if you stay... When you really want to leave, you will always wonder what's out there. And instead of being able to be joyfully obedient to God, you will be bitterly compliant. Because you always wanted to see what was out there, but you never did. But God wants joyful obedience. 
And often, the only way to joyfully obey is to see where disobedience takes you. And so God will let you go. And there are many of you listening to me right now that you're not sure you want to be a Christian. You're not sure, some of you, you're teenagers or, you know, your parents make you come to church, and I'm glad they do. They should do that. Hooray for you, parents. But there's going to come a point where you get to decide. There's going to come a point where you get to make the decisions about what you do on Sunday mornings or what you're going to do with your life or what you're going to believe. Some of you in here, you're not a teenager anymore, but it's all you've ever known, and you kind of wonder, like, do you really believe these things, and are these things really true? But there's this real fear inside of you that, like, lightning will strike you if you take a step away. And maybe I shouldn't tell you this. I don't know if the preacher should say this to you, but lightning won't strike you. God will let you go. And the reason he'll let you go is because he loves you so much that he will give you exactly what you want so that you can realize it's not really what you wanted. You thought it's what you wanted. And until you get it, you'll always believe it's what you want. But it'll let you have it so you can realize it's not really what you wanted. And this is what happens. Jesus is telling a short story, so he, you know, the timeline squeezes together. It doesn't always happen in our life that the money runs out and a famine starts, you know, like six months or a year after we leave. Maybe it's 30 years. Maybe it's 50 years. But there will come a moment every single time when the money runs out, bottom gets hit, something happens, life happens. That's why we find God at the bottom. And the son comes to his senses, and he says, I want to go home. And this is now in this story where we learn a second thing about the heart of God. The second thing we learn is that not only will he let you go, but he will always welcome you back. He'll always welcome you back. And this is the part of the story we're pretty comfortable with because we've seen a million movies with happy endings. This feels right. feels like it's what's supposed to happen. But for just a moment, I want to focus on the conversation that the younger son has with himself, the internal dialogue that he has with himself. Look at verse 17. He says, when he finally came to his senses, which, by the way, is what must happen for every person who becomes a Christian, there comes a point when through the help of the Holy Spirit, you think to yourself, what the heck am I doing? He comes to his senses, and he said to himself, at home, even hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'm going to go home to my dad, and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. What's happening here in his mind? Well, what's happening is he's rationalizing. And he's convinced that there's no way his dad won't hold this against him. And he deserves it, by the way. There's no chance this doesn't come up at Thanksgiving. Every argument, no matter what it's about, is going to come back to that time he left. You remember when you left? What he's done is so bad. He's so disqualified that he's convinced that maybe, just maybe, because his dad's a good guy, maybe, just maybe, he will let him in. But he's not asking for, like, he'll let him in, but he can't expect goodness. He can't expect love. He can't expect favor. And we feel this. We, we come to believe that our, our, our mistakes are too great to not be held against us. And so we settle for a back seat on Sunday mornings. No offense to anybody sitting on the back row. It's a metaphor. I'll go, but I'll sit in the back. I'll make it to heaven, but I'll be in the balcony. 
Because after all, I did leave my family. I did cheat. I did relapse. I did lose all our money. And yeah, God will let us back in, Jason, because he has to. But we can't expect goodness. We can't expect blessing. We can't expect love. I mean, God will love me, but I mean, I am getting remarried, so there's no way he would actually bless this marriage, like really bless my kids. Or, You know, the way, the way I got to this place was, was really not pretty, and so God's not necessarily going to hold it against me, but he's not going to bless it. He's not going to be good to it. And by the way, the people listening to the story would totally agree with this rationalization. Who the heck does he think he is that he would even get to go home and ask his dad to let him be a servant? This is what we do, isn't it? We begin to rationalize and we say, okay, I'll, I'll sneak in and he'll let me in, but we'll just agree to never talk about it and I'll just kind of stay in the margins. But that's not Christianity. Listen to me. God doesn't just let you live in the barn. If you want to come home, you can come home, but you got to let him treat you like a son or a daughter. You're not going to live in the barn. He's not going to let you do it. He's not going to let you stay in the margins. He's not going to just sweep it under the rug so nobody talks about it. If you want to come home, you're going to have to deal with him being good to you and loving you and blessing you. And so the son tried to say his rehearsed speech, you know, because you know he rehearsed it like 500 times. He's walking home. Is my tone right? Do I sound remorseful? Because I am remorseful, but I want to sound extra remorseful. And I know my dad, you know, he likes it when you take ownership of your mistakes. And so I'll make sure that I, this and that. So he's rehearsing, he's practicing, he's rehearsing, he's practicing. And he gets, and his dad comes, and he's trying to get his rehearsed speech out, but he can't get it out because his face is smashed in his father's chest, squeezed to death, and all that pig feces and, 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 and mud slop is getting on his dad's clothes. His dad doesn't care because he'll always welcome you back. Always. But if we're being honest, the hard part is not God letting us back or forgiving us. The hard part is us forgiving ourselves. God wants us to be a son or daughter, but we'd rather live in the barn because we can't forgive ourselves. And so the Christian life is learning to trust that you truly are loved and that your past is not held against you. The Christian life is learning and trusting that you really do owe nothing. This is what the Apostle Paul said, Galatians 2.20. He said, I live trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the Christian life. I wake up tomorrow, I feel completely unlovable, I feel completely disqualified, and so I've got two options, self-pity or high performance. But the Christian life says, I'll do my best, but more than trying to earn it, I've got to trust that it's already true. I am loved, and he gave himself for me. And this is, this is something that makes Christianity incredibly unique, by the way. God announced forgiveness in advance. What a great risk that God would let us know ahead of time, hey, if you ever want to come home, you can Surely someone would take advantage of grace like that. And maybe right now you're thinking of that person who normally takes advantage of it. Can I tell you who it is? You. Me. 
because he'll always take you back. He knows everything about you, and he holds nothing against you. Philip Yancey, um, in his book, old book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace?, he tells a story, a real-life story of a prodigal daughter. She was raised in this rural town in Michigan, grew up on a farm, and her parents were uh, Christian parents who maybe were a little bit too strict or a little, you know, fundamentalist. And so she lived a pretty sheltered life. As she got older, she was, you know, a little rebellious, and she came home one day with a nose ring, and that didn't go well. And they didn't like the music that she listened to, and they would fight, and she would just think about, man, I can't wait till I can leave this place. And As she got older, as a teenager, got in high school, it got worse. Her relationship with her parents got worse, and so one night she couldn't take it anymore. She packed a bag. She climbed out the window. She went to the bus station, and she headed for New York City. She got off the bus. She didn't know where to go, but she was more excited than she was scared because she was finally free. The next day, she met this man that drove the nicest car she had ever seen. He uh, was kind to her, gracious to her, generous towards her. They started a relationship. He was much older than she was, but they started a relationship. And she moved into his penthouse. He lived in a, a penthouse, and she ordered room service whenever she wanted. And it was, it was unbelievable. She couldn't believe, and she would think about her parents, and she would think, they, they knew this whole time that, that, that this was out there, and they didn't tell me, and they kept me trapped. And The man that she was in a relationship with began to teach her how to do things that men really found enjoyable, and because she loved him and, and wanted to be partners with him, she went along with uh, pleasuring men for money and, and helping her, her boyfriend make money and have a business. Her life was amazing. She'd never felt this loved. She'd never felt this accepted. She'd never felt this rich. And everything was going well, but about a year into this relationship, she began to get sick. It escalated pretty quickly, and she could not believe how quickly this man who she thought loved her got rid of her. Next thing she knows, she's living on the street, and she still is doing things to pleasure men, but the money's not as good. And whatever money she does make, she uses for her drug habit that she developed. She's not getting much sleep. She's kind of going crazy because she can't sleep because she's afraid to fall asleep because of the violence that's happening on the streets. This goes on for several weeks. Weeks turn into months. And one night she's laying on the, the street by a department store trying to close her eyes, but she's afraid to when she thinks to herself, I want to go home. I want to go home. She convinces somebody to, to, to let them use a phone. She calls home three times. Nobody answers. The third time, she's not sure if anyone or when she'll be able to call again. And so she just leaves a message on the answering machine. And she says, Mom, Dad, I want you to know I'm okay. But I want to come home if you'd let me. I don't know if you would be okay with that. But I'm going to get on a bus tomorrow and I'm going to head home. And when I get there, if you're at the bus stop, I'll assume that you're okay with me coming home. And if not, I'll just stay on the bus and head somewhere else. She puts together a little bit of money she has. She gets on the bus. She's heading back to Michigan to that bus stop where she left home. It's a seven-hour trip to get there. The whole time she's wondering if her parents will be there. She gets to the bus stop, and the bus driver comes over the speaker and says, 15 minutes, folks. That's all we've got. We're leaving in 15 minutes. She gets out her little compact mirror 
She looks and she, she sees the tobacco stains on her fingers and her teeth and she wonders if her parents will notice or what they'll say. She's been practicing her speech. It's her fault. She should have never left. They were right. She was wrong. She's so sorry. She gets off the bus and she looks on the sidewalk and there's no one there. And she says, well, who can blame them, you know? I probably wouldn't take me back either. She decides she's going to go to the restroom before she gets back on the bus, and she walks into the bus stop, and she turns the corner, and she sees something she was absolutely not expecting. It's 40 of her friends and family with poster board, balloons, and noisemakers that say, welcome home. We missed you. We love you. Her dad steps out from in between the crowd, grabs her, and hugs her. She's crying. She had a speech, but she can't remember what she was supposed to say. Her dad is crying. They're both crying. And her dad says to her, we've got to hurry and get you home. She says, Dad, I'm so sorry. He says, no, we've got to hurry and get you home. She says, Dad, I'm so sorry. He says, no, you're not listening. We've got to hurry and get you home because everybody's waiting so we can start your welcome home party. This is Christianity. This is grace. This is God. He will always take you back. Always. And if I was a really good preacher, that's probably where we would stop the sermon. But that's not where Jesus stopped the story. And that would have been a great place to stop it because we feel it, we're emotional, we, we want that kind of love. But Jesus isn't just telling a story or about a rebellious younger son. There was something else he wanted to teach us, and he does it through the older son. The son comes home. The party has started. The dad's looking around, and he sees someone who's missing, and it's the older brother. And he goes outside to find his oldest son, and to his surprise, the oldest son isn't excited. He's furious. And he says in verse 29, he tells us why he's mad. He says, all these years I have slaved for you, and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. The oldest son is mad because his entire life he thought what his dad wanted was his help. See, in his mind, he had a way that the world made sense and in his mind, good people are rewarded and bad people are punished. And so his entire relationship with his father was based on his performance. You can count on me. I'll be there. I'll do what you want me to do. And I'll do it really well. And when, you're, when your relationship with God is based on performance, there's no way to not become prideful and judgmental. It's actually one of the most ironic things about religion that the better you try to be good, the less loved you feel by God. It's, it's, it's so backwards, we don't believe it's true. But moral living does not make you feel more loved by God. Instead, you feel more guilty and anxious and judgmental. And before you know it, you are incapable of celebrating because you can always find reasons why someone doesn't deserve something good for to happen for them. This is the older brother. In 1665, Rembrandt painted 
a painting two years before he died. It was one of his last works, and the painting is called The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's, it's, this is the painting. I don't know how well you can see it there, but obviously we can see the younger brother in his, in his you know, messed up garments, and we see the father embracing him. But over on the right-hand side, you can see kind of the outline. We don't know for, for sure that this is the older brother, but I think it would be safe to assume, Rembrandt did not say, but it would be safe to assume that this is the older brother. And you can't see it well. You can Google it if you want to. But on his face is a facial expression that says it all. And Henry Nouwen, actually talking about this painting, says that the, the, the older brother, or the gentleman on the right, he calls him a critical observer. A critical observer. And Henry Nouwen says, and this resonated with me so deeply, he said, Nouwen said that the critical observer longs to be embraced like his younger brother but he cannot comprehend why or how he gets to be embraced when he's done everything right and he's never felt that close to God before, that loved by God before. And I looked at this painting all week. I was reading about the story and reading about this painting. And I have to be honest with you, I know what that feels like to be that critical observer. Yeah, I can put myself in the younger brother's shoes, younger son's shoes. There was a time that I was away from God and, and he took me back. But if I'm being honest, there's a lot of critical observer in here. There's a lot of older brother in here. And I don't want to be that person. He's in there. And in this story, Jesus makes a point that was incredibly offensive to the people listening, the religious people. The point that Jesus was making to them is that you can be morally good and just as lost. Matter of fact, one of the most common ways we avoid God is to try to be so good he'll leave us alone. I'll keep my end of the deal, you keep your end of the deal, and let's just keep it on friendly terms. But he doesn't want you to be good. He wants a relationship with you. He's not asking you to keep a moral code. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to feel loved by him. And here's what I know. I know that there are many of you in the room that you have been coming to church for years and you still feel like an outsider. And, and you felt this way the entire time you've been connected to church or to God. And you never meant to, but now all you can do is critically observe. And the reason is because you still are trying to prove your worth to God. You're still trying to prove your faith. You're still trying to earn something. Maybe you've never been able to put words to it like this, but in essence, you're saying to God, why, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've tried my hardest. I'm, I'm doing everything that I know to do, but why don't you love me? Why don't I feel good enough? Why don't I feel lovable enough to you, and that's the way you would describe your relationship with Jesus. Just never quite good enough. Never quite good enough. And you come to church and you watch people give testimonies or you watch people worship or you see the smile on their face and you think, I want to feel that. I want to know what that feels like. But you always find yourself on the outside looking in a little bit too judgmental, a little bit too prideful, a little bit too condescending. And it's because you don't, you haven't truly grasped the gospel message yet. That you have nothing to prove. 
That there's nothing about you that God is waiting for you to, to earn or to have the credentials in order to be acceptable to God. All you have to do is receive it. You can't earn it, but you have to receive it. We say all the time around here, all it takes to be a Christian is nothing. But most people don't have it. And so Jesus tells this story. We see the heart of God that he lets us leave. He welcomes us back and he invites us in. And today, if you're here and you would say, you know what, I can see I'm that critical observer. I can put myself in that spot. He's inviting you in to the party today. You don't have to stay on the outside looking in. There's a party happening and you're invited. I was thinking this week as I was feeling challenged and convicted about um, being on the outside looking in. I was thinking about um, my cousin's wedding. I guess like 15 or 16 years ago. I can't remember exactly uh, when it was, but um, I'm so thankful for my Christian family and Christian heritage, but, um, you know, it was a pretty traditional Christian upbringing. I don't want to say fundamentalist, but, you know, it had some of that in it. And so uh, in our family, especially with my grandparents, the absolute worst thing you could ever do is dance. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Because if you dance, you end up like becoming an alcoholic or something. I don't know. The logic never made sense to me. But whatever you do, don't dance. Don't dance. Andrew and I did not have any dancing at our wedding reception because the contract for the church said no dancing. You know, so we didn't, you know, we didn't dance. And I remember, I, I, I was, I, as I think about it, it's such, it's such emotion to it. But I remember at my cousin's wedding, so all of our family, like, you know, everybody's drinking Pepsi and there's no dancing you know, at our wedding reception. But, the, the, but Brittany, his wife, like that's not necessarily how their family was raised. And so I remember leading up to the wedding, there was just lots of conversation about if there was going to be an open bar and all this stuff. But what was, not, what was already decided is there would be no dancing. But there was a dance floor and the DJ was playing music and it was just the most awkward reception because like 20 minutes in, there's music playing and an empty dance floor. And it was just awkward, you know, and nobody wanted to offend anybody and all the family. And, and all of a sudden, it felt like 30 minutes, maybe it was five, I don't know, but it felt long, this awkward, tense wedding reception. All of a sudden, from like kind of sort of the corner, my grandfather, my 71 or 72-year-old grandfather, who's never, I've ever seen him dance a day in his life, gets up from the table, walks out onto the dance floor by himself as the music's playing, and starts dancing <laughs> like this. And when he did, everything changed. Everybody flooded the dance floor, and we were Macarena and cha-cha sliding and doing all the stuff. And I thought about that this week because it changed the entire room. And if I'm being honest, if I had to describe my tendency in following Jesus, I'm on the outside looking in a critical observer, making sure not to mess anything up. And I, that image just came to my mind this week. Like, I, I, I would rather go into the party and dance a little bit. And so for all of us religious church kids and church people, maybe we could stop looking from the outside in and go into the party that God's inviting us into. He will always invite us in. So I'm going to pray for us. Um, 
We're going to have the opportunity to take communion together. Our prayer team is going to come down. But as you come forward today, if you'd like to, you don't have to, but as you come to take communion today, um, you get to be a part of the story. You take the bread that represents the body of Christ and the juice which represents the blood of Christ and his sacrifice for you. And, and you are in this story because the story that Robert read to us, it said that when the son was still a long way off, his father ran to him. His father was not on the front porch like this. He ran to him. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. He came to us. He left heaven, Philippians says, took on the form of a servant. He left heaven and he came to us. And so today when we take the bread and the juice, we get to celebrate the fact that we were once the prodigal who was coming home. But God came to us. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that uh, you did not leave us on our own or that you're not some vindictive, resentful father who wants us to make up for all our mistakes. But God, instead, you did all the heavy lifting. You did all the redeeming when you sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins. And so, God, I pray for every person in the room today who feels like the younger son who is somewhere in their life they never thought they would be, or maybe they feel like they're too bad or too far gone, or they feel like, you know, that that there's nothing redeemable about them. God, I pray that they would feel today and know today that you will always welcome them back, not as a servant, but as a son or daughter. And God, I pray for every one of us in the room today who feel like that older brother who's been trying to be good enough for you our entire life, but never receiving your love, always trying to earn it. God, I pray that we would leave the dutiful compliance behind and we would enter into the dance, the party, the relationship with you. Thank you, God, that when we were still a long ways off, you ran to us.